0: Well, we're walking together.
1: She's holding my hand. Actually, my finger. She's only five then. It's the summer of 2015. Hannah and I are going for a walk. We're going fishing, actually. It's something of a tradition. When there's the right combination of sunshine, breeze, and boredom, Hannah's inner alarm clock goes off, and she asks me, Daddy, can we go fishing? And Of course, I say, yes. Get your shoes on. So this particular day, I'm really excited to take her fishing because I know that the dandelions were out. I had seen them the day before. This yellow, bright, glowing field that is sure to make her smile with five-year-old girl joy. These are the scenes that fathers pray for. I can't wait to see her reaction when she sees 10,000 flowers dancing in the wind. But rounding the corner and just coming into view, I catch sight of the field and my heart sinks like a stone. The dandelions have turned to seed overnight. The yellow bright is gone. They've grayed and turned soft. The shimmering evening yellow glow is now a dull gray mist. And I wonder if she'll be disappointed. But we keep walking, and when we round the corner to the field, she gasps. Her eyes are wide open, her mouth is wide open, and she says, Daddy, look, a field full of wishes. And I know that's a little cheesy, but it is still one of my favorite memories with my daughter now five years later. Perspective changes everything, doesn't it? In dandelions, as in spiritual things, what we usually assume to be the death of something is often the start of something much more beautiful and more valuable. Christmas is right around the corner. We're going to celebrate it in just about a month. It celebrates the birth of our king. But as much as Christmas looks backward toward a prophecy, it also looks forward to a promise. We celebrate the birth of a baby in a manger, but this baby came with a purpose. He was born to grow up and to give himself away. Perspective changes everything. So this is the fourth week in our teaching series, Preparing the Way, and we've been pairing prophecies from Isaiah with the Gospel of John. In these past few weeks, we've seen Jesus in some really tender but very unexpected places. He sits with a woman at a well and engages her in conversation. And then he addresses a woman in a crowd who's shamefully accused and he defends her dignity. And then last week he kneels by the roadside with a blind man, he mixes some mud and he gives him sight for the first time in his life. And I don't know if you picked this up, but Jesus shows up in some really earthy, really unexpected places. He gets dirty, he gets hot, he experiences thirst, he gets mud on his hands. And as things turned out, as Jesus moves through the Gospels, and this is not the king that people had expected. This morning, we're gonna take a look at what many consider to be the high point of Isaiah's work. If Isaiah has been climbing mountaintops, describing what he sees, looking out to a day in the future where God's king is gonna come, and then he descends into the valleys to describe what he sees. Well, this week, Isaiah 53 is his highest peak yet. And with stunning clarity, he describes a king who's rejected, who suffers, who's oppressed, and then who's eventually, finally, vindicated. In this incredibly vivid portrait, Isaiah sets the stage for something that takes seven centuries to develop. Jesus is the king that we never expected, but he's the king that we've always needed. Before we get to Isaiah's words this morning, I want to give you a clue, kind of something to watch out for, just a little heads up. Now, I'm not sure if you're a reader, but this is the time of year where my reading pace really picks up. I feel drawn to read more in these days. Just give me a couch, a blanket, a cup of coffee, and a fireplace, and a good book, and I'm in a very happy place. Uh, One of the books I've been reading recently talks about the connection between cultures and words. And without going too deep, here's the insight for you. Cultures develop words based on what's important to them. And this figures really strongly when we Kind of dip our toe into Isaiah 53 here in just a minute. Cultures develop words based on what's important to them. So if something is important in your culture, that means you're going to invent a word for it. So, quick example here are four words that exist in other cultures that are basically untranslatable in English. Um, but I think they're fascinating. And I'm not a linguist, so brace yourselves. First, uh, Italians use the word culo cucciano to describe the mark left on a table by a wet glass. Now, if you have any Italian family uh, or an Italian heritage, you know that dinner is really important. And so the idea of a wet, cold glass on a white tablecloth and the mark that is left there, that's probably pretty familiar. In Spain, sombre mesa describes the time after a meal when you have conversations with the people that you've just shared the meal with. And you know that that's important because late night conversations are really important in Spain. Danes use the word huga to describe the feeling of cozy contentment easily understood in a culture where long nights and dark winters are warded off by the warmth of friendship. Urdu, which is spoken in the storytelling culture of Pakistan, uses the word Goya to describe the feeling of getting lost in your thoughts when you're listening to a good story being told. Now, why do I bring all that up? It's interesting, but what does it have to do with Isaiah's prophecy that we're gonna read and Jesus's life? Cultures develop words based on images, practices, values that are important to them. And there is nothing more important to God's people in Isaiah's day than worship of Almighty God. Worshiping God in 6th century BC in the temple and the central dominant image that typified worship in that day wasn't the pulpit, it wasn't a piano, it wasn't somebody on stage, it wasn't anything like that. The most central important image for God's people was a spotless lamb. And in Isaiah 53 alone, there are 25 words that tie back to this image of a sacrificial lamb. This is Isaiah being as concentrated as he can, jamming 25 words into 12 verses, looking out, describing what God is going to do through this king. And so we're going to read this prophecy in four parts. And I'm going to offer just a brief comment on each. So let's dive in. (laughs) Isaiah 53, verse 1, the king rejected. Here's how this starts off. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? It's another way of asking like, who has seen God do great things? For he grew up, he's talking about the king, for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. No form, no beauty, no charisma, no reason why we should even look at him. In fact, if Isaiah's words are right, there will be times where we won't even want to look at him. This is not this blowhard swagger king. This is a sorrow king. He knows what it's like to be sad. He's not power hungry. He knows grief. He is despised and rejected. Second part, the king suffering. Take a look in verse four. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all." Do you get all those verbs? Born, carried, stricken, afflicted, pierced, crushed, chastised, wounded. And then this stunningly clear insight on our spiritual condition, We're like sheep who've gone astray, everyone turning to their own way. We're wandering sheep at best. Not a very high compliment for us as people, is it? Stubborn, headstrong, hard-hearted, strong-willed, intent on our own way, not knowing that in our quest for independence, that leads us to places that bring us pain. Pain for us? No, pain for this king. In verse seven, he continues, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that's led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit, In his mouth. This is the king oppressed. Silently, compliantly, willingly. Paradoxically, he is the king shepherd and the victim sheep. And in his sovereignty, this king gives life for his sheep who strangely ensure his death. And then we get a little bit of the corner turn here in verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. We get this curious window into the will of God here, don't we? It's the will of the Lord to crush him, but the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. It's kind of life by death, strength through weakness, victory through defeat. This very... Strange king. Strange king. Now there's a 700-year gap between Isaiah's words here and Jesus' birth. And if you were looking forward to a king, Jesus does not fit the mold. It's like rounding the corner of time. They catch a glimpse and they can see it just coming into view. And their hearts sink like a stone. He doesn't look like a king. He's a carpenter's son, after all. He doesn't act like a king. He hangs out with fishermen and bad ones too. He doesn't seem like he's very interested in power, but what's this kingdom that he's always talking about? For those who are looking for this perfect king, Jesus, mm, they're just confused. But for those who know what to look for, Jesus fits the picture perfectly. Jesus is the king that we never expected, but he's the king that we've always needed. So John 19 The disciples who have been on the scene are now scattered, all but one. (laughs) The crowds who used to watch Jesus on hillsides and gather in street corners are nowhere to be found. Even the Pharisees who used to lurk in the shadows have left him. Jesus is rejected, suffering, oppressed, and now he is utterly and alone. John was there, he and three others. Here's how he describes the scene. John chapter 19 Verse 16, so they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place they call the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And get this. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, don't write king of the Jews. But rather this man said, I am king of the Jews. Interesting, even in this spot, they can't even give him his dignity. Pilate answered, what I've written, I've written. Skip down a couple of verses to verse 28. After this, Jesus knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. What a profoundly human moment for the second person of the Trinity. I thirst. And a jar of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now it's important to understand what's happening here. And just a quick heads up, this is not going to be pleasant. Crucifixion meant death from any angle. And Isaiah saw it 700 years early through this fuzzy lens. And now here we get it in up close HD from John's writing. And John was there. He saw the whole thing. And so he got all the details. Crucifixion the most horrible way to die ever devised by man. The victim could die from blood loss, asphyxiation, dehydration, or given the amount of time that the victims were exposed to the elements, just simply infection. In his book, The Crucifixion of Jesus, physician C. Truman Davis describes the scene like this, and I would try to describe it in my own words, but I think you're going to find that his words are more than sufficient. So just listen, I want to read it to you. He says, Jesus is quickly thrown backwards with his shoulders against the wood. The soldier feels for the depression at the front of his wrists. He drives a heavy square wrought iron nail through the wrist and deep into the wood. Quickly, he moves to the other side and repeats the action, being careful not to pull the arms too tightly, but to allow some flexion and movement. The cross beam is then lifted in place at top of the vertical beam. Jesus' left foot is pressed backward against his right foot, and with both feet extended, toes down, a nail is driven through the arch of each, leaving the knees moderately flexed. As Jesus slowly sags down with more weight on the nails in the wrist, fiery pain shoots up along his fingers and into his arms. As he pushes himself upward to avoid this stretching torment, he places his full weight on the nail through his feet. You can't imagine this. At this point, another phenomenon occurs. As his arms fatigue, great waves of cramps sweep up over the muscles, knotting them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. With these cramps comes the inability to push himself upward. Air can be drawn into the lungs, but it cannot be exhaled. Jesus fights to raise himself in order to get even one small breath. Spasmatically, he's able to push himself upward to exhale and bring in the life-giving oxygen. Hours of this limitless pain, cycles of twisting, joint-rending cramps, partial asphyxiation, searing pain as tissue is torn from his lacerated back as he moves up and down against the rough timber. Then another agony begins. A deep crushing pain as his chest slowly fills with fluid and begins to compress his heart, It's almost over. The loss of fluids has reached a critical level. The compressed heart is struggling to pump heavy, thick, sluggish blood into his tissues. The tortured lungs are making a frantic effort to grasp in small gulps of air. The body of Jesus is now in extremis and he can barely feel the chill of death creeping through his tissues. What a horrific description that is. Everybody, do something with me. You're sitting at home, maybe on a couch. I want you to do this with me. Everybody, breathe in and breathe out. That would have been too much for the one who created the universe. John closes out his description with a few final details. Verse 31. Since it was the day of preparation, and so the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that the legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. Now here's the idea. If you're pushing yourself up trying to get air, what they want to do is they want to break your legs so that you can't push yourself up anymore. And so soldiers would come along with a sledgehammer and hit your calf So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the other who had been crucified with him. But when they got to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. And at once there came out blood and water, which was a sign that he was dead. Now John's going to talk about himself here. He says, he who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true. And he knows he's telling the truth that you might also believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones was broken. That's from Exodus. And another scripture that says, they will look on him who they have pierced. That's from Zechariah. Now, it's really easy to see or to wistfully imagine Isaiah like this dusty old scroll. And it's really easy to imagine John's portrait here like this enchanting oil painting hanging on an Italian art gallery wall somewhere. But what are we supposed to do with these things? If Jesus is the king that we never expected, but the king that we've always needed, we need to turn a corner. I think there's three things that we need if we're gonna make this stick. If we're gonna prepare our hearts for Jesus What does this have to do with our lives in 2020? And here's where Isaiah's prophecy and John's portrait become intensely personal. We have three needs, here they are. Need number one, we need to personalize sin. We need to personalize sin. Isaiah 53 and John 19 combine to make this sobering, haunting, gripping picture of Jesus. And if I can be personal, I don't even like to think about Jesus this way. I really don't. I like to picture Jesus like he's teaching on a mountainside, or he's sitting around a fire with his disciples, or he's kneeling in a ditch with the blind beggar and he's speaking words of life to him. It's natural to want to distance our comfortable lives from this very uncomfortable picture because it's painful. And at its truest, it's horrifying. But I need you to consider something. All of that, Isaiah's faint prophecy and John's HD portrait, all of that was necessary because it was for you, and it was for me. In that moment, Jesus knew your name. In that moment, Jesus knew how many hairs were on your head. In that moment, he knew the best day you'd ever have. He knew the first time that would break your heart. He knew the thing that would bring you joy in life, and he knew what you'd be most ashamed by. Quick story, when I was very new in ministry, I had a leader in our church at the time take me out to lunch. And we went to this really, really nice restaurant. We sat down in this booth. The server came and took our orders and gave us the ice water, right? And we're sitting there. And so he asked me this question. He says, uh, Brandon, just tell me how you, how you came to faith in Christ. And so some of you know this story, uh, but for those who don't, long story short, uh, I came to Christ very early as a young kid. And then there was this 11 year gap where I did not pursue the things of Jesus. I didn't know how to do that. I didn't know what those things were. And so my heart kind of meandered into this very self-centered existence, and there were some profound moral implications for chasing the things that I wanted rather than the things that Jesus wanted for me. And so I explained this to this guy as we sipped our ice water, and this very well-meaning person <laughs> said this. He said, or something like it, he says, you know, we all have those periods. He says, um, I had one myself. We all kind of sow our wild oats for a while. It doesn't sound like you did anything that bad. And. Like, I appreciate his sentiment, I really do, because he was trying to comfort me, I think. But let me be clear, lest you think I'm making a mountain out of a molehill. If you think that Jesus died to make good men slightly better, what a waste the cross was. What a profound waste of life for Jesus, for such a small return. Jesus didn't die to make good men better. He died to make dead men live. Here's the point. Whenever you downplay the penalty of sin, you diminish the power of the cross. I'll say that again, because it's super important. Whenever you downplay the penalty of sin, you diminish the power of the cross. The cross is powerful, the cross is beautiful, the cross is necessary, why? Because my sin is real, my sin is deep, and it can't be dealt with by pretending it doesn't exist or that it's no big deal. Put another way, until you see your sin for what it is, you will never see Jesus for who he is. We need to personalize sin. I've got a sin problem and you have a sin problem. And it's not about comparing them because it's so deep, it doesn't matter. Thomas Brooks, 17th century English Puritan preacher, put it this way. I want to read this to you. It's so good. He says, sin is a plague, yes, the worst and most infectious plague in the world. And yet, ah, how few are there who tremble at it, who keep at a safe distance from it. Interesting words given our day. hmm? He continues. When we consider that our sin has slain our Lord Jesus, it should provoke our hearts. Never let go out of your minds the thoughts of a crucified Christ. Let these be food and drink to you. Let them be your sweetness and your consolation, your honey and your desire, your reading, your meditation, your life, your death, your resurrection. What's he saying? Our sin matters. It's a big deal. It's not a mistake. It's not an oopsie. It's not a dark period or whatever. Like, No, 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 no. I've offended the Almighty God. That's a big deal. Isaiah 53 and John 19 don't matter if all you did was a mistake. And so the question I have to ask you right here with need number one is, have you come to grips with your sin? Have you asked God for his forgiveness? Does the cross matter to you? How does it characterize your life? We need to personalize sin. and No one can answer those questions but you. Need number two, we need to name our idols. We need to name our idols. Let's put this another way. We need to get a clear picture of how every other king in this world is so profoundly unsatisfying. So let's back up. What is an idol? An idol is anything that you look to, hope in, cling to, to give what only God can give you. Now, you don't have wooden idols in your house, I doubt. You probably don't have a golden calf sitting on your coffee table in your living room, but you've got idols, you've got things, you've got people, you've got relationships, you've got realities that you are looking to, hoping and clinging, fo- clinging to, to give you something that only God can give you. And you've got to name those things. And until you acknowledge that they are profoundly bankrupt, Jesus' sacrifice, Isaiah 53 and John 19, this is just a quaint sentimentality. Until Jesus is better than something, he's just a picture on your wall. Why is your job so unsatisfying? You ever ask that question? That relationship that you're hoping for, why does it never like get there? That box from Amazon, it never really scratches the itch. Or to get really pointed, why do elections just not deliver everything that we were hoping that they would, right? <laughs> it's a really simple answer, we just don't like it that our God is in the idol-exposing business. He is an idol-exposing God. Remember what God told his people in the wilderness. He says, I, the Lord, am a jealous God. My glory I will not give to another. Now, what does that mean? It doesn't mean that he's insecure. Like our love for him somehow makes up for some deficiency in himself. It doesn't mean that he's envious, like he's jealous or he wants the love that like we're giving our idols. It means that he loves you intensely. He is a good gift giver, but our God is an idol-exposing God. He gives you good gifts, but he will remove those good gifts from you. He will bring them to a screeching, crashing, grinding, maddeningly, sorrowful, painful halt if it means he gets your heart back. Don't excuse God from his sovereignty just because you worship him for his goodness. Now you can shake your fist at him and call him mean when he takes things away from you. You can hang your head in sorrow because he didn't give you your best life now. You can wring your hands in frustration wondering what in the world has happened, but it doesn't matter because he's God, he's on the throne and he's sovereign and nothing can change that. He will use any means necessary to show you that a job is just a job. And a relationship is just a relationship, and a box from Amazon is just a box from Amazon, and a country and an election are just a country, and they're just an election. God was good four years ago, he's good now, he's gonna be good forever. God was sovereign four years ago, he's sovereign now, he's gonna be sovereign forever. Nothing is gonna change that. He is the uncontested king of the universe and his goodness will remove idols from you because he loves you enough to show you the profound emptiness of everything but himself. Christian, do not lose sight of the greatest treasure you have and that is God himself. So how do we name our idols? Practically, what does this mean? How do you actually do it? So it's actually almost impossible. And here's what I mean. If you're like me, you can't really even see them. (laughs) You almost need somebody else to point them out to you. So I'm going to ask you to do something really courageous. And probably not a lot of you are going to do it. So consider this a little bit of a dare. How do you name your idols? First, find someone who knows you really, really well. Okay, Someone who will be deadly honest with you. Second, ask them questions. Questions like, when do you see me lose hope? What do you see me put my hope in? Where am I drawing joy? When do I lose sight of what matters? These are good, idle questions. Then thirdly, close your mouth, listen to them, and refuse to get defensive, which is way easier said than done, at least for me. Now here's the thing. This is the Midwest. We are not direct people. And so you're going to have to work to assure them that you're serious about what they're asking, or what you're asking from them and that they're safe to be honest with you in their response. So find someone who knows you well, ask them for help to understand your idols and then listen to what they have to say. We need to name our idols. Need number three, we need to lean on Jesus's strength. I wanna turn and glance over our shoulder a little bit. In week two of this series, we talked about a woman who was caught in adultery and we said that Jesus does for us what we could never do for ourselves. And that sounds really great, but nowhere is that statement truer than when it comes to fighting sin. Jesus does for us what we can never do for ourselves. I talk to a lot of people who deal with sin a lot, right? I deal with sin a lot. It feels like a battle that's never really done. And the worst part of hearing us wrestle through sin And addictions or anything like that is how much we hate ourselves when we give in, right? doesn't matter if it's, you know, alcoholism, pornography, or anger, or bitterness, or whatever your thing is, just cheating on a test, right? One of the ways that the enemy gets at you, I hear it because I know it, is he lets sinful behavior promote self-loathing belief. And it sounds like this, I'm like, ah, I'm such an idiot. I gave in again. I can't believe that. How would God even love me? I'm such a fool. It's like you've got this ocean of water that's ready to fill back in and press in against your life. And you've got like two sandbags to hold it up. You're like, well, that ain't going to work. You need something, spoiler alert, it's someone to stand up against that monstrous force that wants to fill back in and flood your soul. here's the thing, guy: I'm I'm talking about saved people. I'm talking about people who have walked the aisle, raised the hand, checked the box, they've said, whatever, they've said, I know I'm a sinner. I've trusted Christ. I know my eternity is secure. The cross is enough, but I still got this big issue. So what's the deal? I've noticed something recently, and I think it's a response really to the pressure that we're all feeling, because 2020 has not been very kind to our souls. Everybody handles this pressure differently, but what I've noticed is this kind of common thinking, and you can catch traces of it in remarks people say or like quippy posts and sayings and things like that. It's this dangerous thinking that sort of subtly suggests that we are the ones who fight our spiritual battles. It's like this, you know, Satan says, well, you're not strong enough to withstand the storm. Well, I am the storm, right? Or like, you know, if there's a Goliath in front of you, there must be a David inside of you. No, 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 there's not. Okay. Those ideas sound really cute. They sound really catchy. They sound invigorating and really motivating. The only trouble is they reflect some terrible theology and they're just not biblical. 2 <laughs> Thessalonians 3.3. 3. Listen, the Lord is faithful. He will strengthen you. Where's your strength come from? Romans eight thirteen. if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the flesh. Even Jesus' own words, he says, in this world you're gonna have trouble, but take heart. Why? I have overcome the world. Here's the thing, I don't fight my battles. I'm not that strong. I don't conquer sin, that's not my job. My job is not to outfox Satan's tactics or to outlast him in some kind of cosmic boxing ring. My battle's not against Satan, my battle is against me. My unbelief in the power of the gospel so if you're gonna stiff arm sin and Isaiah 53 and John 19 are gonna be real to you and the cross is gonna to matter to you, at some point you're gonna to have to figure out where your strength comes from and it's not from you. So don't try it. So how do you do that? How do you lean on Jesus' strength? This is super basic, it's super simple, it's super old school, but it's the truth. Leaning on Jesus' strength can mean a lot of things, but it always means one thing you will never experience victory over sin without prayer. You'll never experience victory over sin without prayer. It's another one of these great paradoxes of the Christian faith that we find our greatest victory when we're surrendered on our knees. We find our greatest victory when we're surrendered on our knees. Now here's how this connects to Jesus' death, Isaiah 53 and John 19. When Christ died, He did more than conquer sin's future penalty. He canceled sin's present power. That's a big theological point. I'm going to say it again because you need to hear it. When Christ died, he did more than conquer sin's future penalty. He canceled sin's present power. Sin doesn't have power over you. It's still in your life. It's still present. But Jesus wants to fight your battles. Yes, your eternity is secure. That's locked up. It's sealed. Like, you're good to go. He's gone ahead of you. He's made a way. And I need this as a very deep comfort. He's fighting for you and with you in your presence. And so that's need number three. You've got to lean on Jesus' strength. And there's no other way to do that other than prayer. Yellow fields of dandelions that turn to white seed a majestic kingly throne that ends up as a horrific wooden cross. What we hoped would bring life looks like death had won, but as we know, death is not the end, not for our king. I wanna close by returning to Isaiah's prophecy again because we've seen the king rejected, the king suffering, the king oppressed, but now the king vindicated. Look in verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. That's another word for sin. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong. Why? Because he poured out his soul to death and he was numbered with the transgressors. Guys, that's us. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors you shall see and be satisfied." What a great line that is. Jesus saw the woman at the well. Jesus saw the woman in the crowd. Jesus saw the blind man by the side of the road, and Jesus sees you. That's the point of Jesus's birth. The eternal Son of God sees you. The cross is for them and their brokenness, and their shame, and the cross is for you. Same shame, same brokenness. Because of the power of the cross, we can have that exact same peace and that exact same freedom. Jesus is the king that we never expected, but he's the king that we've always needed. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for the curveball, this unexpected king who doesn't look like any other king, doesn't act like any other king. He does what no other king could do. And out of love for us, God, you bought us back for yourselves. God, help us to personalize our sin, to name our idols for what they are, and to lean on your strength. The cross is real and it's powerful. Father, we say thank you, thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray.
0: Amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces making much of Jesus every day to everyone.